Welcome to Dangerously Likely, I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Jarrell Couch. And today, we are Dangerously Likely to talk about student loans. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. On Monday, a report released by top scientists at the UN said that the world has only eight years until it surpasses a crucial climate target. This crucial climate target keeping is keeping carbon from emissions out of the atmosphere to keep our goal of keeping global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, and that can be out of reach as soon as 2030 if we do not start acting faster. The report states that this is a question of whether or not humanity will have the collective resolve to fix this. The report also notes that it is possible and economically viable for nations to make the massive investments necessary to reach this goal, but it cannot be incremental change as it is now. Terrell, do you have any hope that companies and nations will begin to make these massive investments anytime soon? No. <laughs> um, specifically because we have a party in this country that still refuses to acknowledge that climate change is real and all it takes is one pendulum switch for us to once again pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, once again start drilling, once again start focusing on all of these other pieces. Like I know on this pod I've made a lot of arguments and a lot of spaces for the conservative party and I still stand by that when I speak about the people. From an establishment perspective, there is not a chance that these individuals who think by saying something that we all see day by day is real isn't um, is how they get elected. There's just there's not a chance that there's going to be that change. And then I, the last time we had spoke on this topic, um, we highlighted how Idaho passed a resolution to investigate um, those special standards when it comes to environmental um, business practices like it is very hard for me to believe that if we are supposed to be the leader in this, if we're supposed to be building those um, geopolitical coalitions to truly combat climate change as a big emitter, that we have a chance or a space to be successful. I think that uh, we can hope for the best, but expect the worst. Nah, just expect the worst. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I actually... Um, you know, I hope things go our way, obviously, in the world. And I hope that a pendulum swing doesn't mean that the end of climate change spending as we know it, as it did last time in this country. I am actually really interested in what Europe's going to do next, um, because they're looking to ban Russian oil. They're looking to ban Russian coal and energy. And like, obviously, all of those are fossil fuels that will just continue to add um, to the problem of global warming. Um, and there's been some reports that, that this war in Ukraine like a byproduct of it might be Europe, like really crazy, crazily investing into a lot of renewable and green and clean energy sources. And if that really happens, like it, it would just, it'll be interesting to see if Europe as an economic powerhouse of the world, if they do that, will it trickle down to some other countries? I don't know if it will, but I think that if we have one place that's really heavily investing as a collective into this kind of stuff, I think that might change the vibe in the world a little bit. We'll see what happens, though. What a perfect segue to check out the international fold. Following a series of images and testimonials out of Bucha, a city just outside of Kiev, um, Western nations 
are making moves to further sanction Russia over their egregious attack on Ukraine. On Monday, the globe was faced with the true cost of this conflict, seeing gruesome images of bodies left battered in the daylight by Russian forces. President Zelensky spoke to the United Nations on Tuesday, accusing Putin and Russian forces of war crimes, calling on the organization to hold tribunals against Moscow for this quote-unquote genocide. Russia's defense minister calls these images stage performances and vows to have evidence of Russia's innocence um, with any further movement in the UN. Western nations are coordinating additional sanctions against Moscow as the European Union announced on Tuesday, which also Caleb highlighted, bans on coal, wood, chemicals, and other imports worth roughly $9.86 billion a year. With the United States President Joe Biden ratcheting ratcheting up his rhetoric against President Putin, stating, you may remember, I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened in Bucha. He is a war criminal. While both Ukrainian and Russian representatives set optimistic signals um, following their latest round of talks a week ago, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that Moscow won't accept a Ukrainian de- Ukrainian's demand that a prospective peace deal includes the immediate pullout of troops from Ukraine by a referendum or agreement. We at Dangerous Likely will continue to update our listeners on these horrendous actions and conflicts as they develop, especially as we're hearing more news out of the United Nations. Caleb, do you have anything to add? As usual, uh, everything that we thought would happen if Russia invaded Ukraine is coming true and it's coming to light. And, um, you know, Russia's propaganda machine to Russian citizens is very powerful. But, you know, allied nations of the U.S. have really come together on this. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you just got to give credit where credit's due with Joe Biden and what he has done to kind of face the Russian threat without actually going to war. Um. But, you know, heart out for all the people of Ukraine. And I I hope Russia comes to their senses and leaves soon. Taking a quick tour around the world, European Union executives um, take a new bid to cut funds to Hungary for their weakening democracy. The COVID-19 outbreak in China's largest metropolitan area, Shanghai remains extremely grim amid an ongoing lockdown confining around 26 million people to their homes, um, city officials reported on Tuesday. West Africa is facing its worst food crisis in decades due to increased conflicts, drought, floods, and the war in Ukraine. Nearly a dozen international organizations have reported as of Tuesday. And Monday's Harris Interactive Poll um, showed that Macron is still likely to win the French election, but a lot of American media syndicates are going crazy because his far-right challenger, Le Pen, um, saw one of her highest poll ratings in recent times, if they were to go into a runoff. And we'll be right back.
And we're back. So earlier this week, Terrell and I had stumbled upon a Bloomberg News article that led us into a conversation about the short-run and long-term impacts of the student loan pause, the labor market, whether wages are growing or not, if inflation is putting people back to where they were, even with wage growth, and a lot more. We really wanted to start a conversation today with the student loan kind of moratorium that has taken place during the pandemic. Um, And the article, which we're starting with today, is called quote, how a $38 billion student loan experiment changed the lives of an American generation, unquote, by Claire Ballantyne. The article outlined how our generation has become defined by our debts, mostly by student loan debt, and how it has skyrocketed past any other debt that's been held in the past 20 years. In economic terms, 43 million Americans have $1.6 trillion in student debt, and the moratorium on student loans that was put in place during the pandemic has saved these Americans over $37 billion in interest payments. It's also worth noting that the same percentage of the population that is low income and the same percentage that is high income both experience the burden of student loan debt. So really, it's about the same percentage in every income population of how much debt um, they experience. Uh, What's more, with inflation and housing prices soaring, those who are unable to become a home- homeowner due to already crippling debt have to wait even longer to do so because of the economic factors at play today. Home values have increased by 20% alone just this past year. The pause on student loan payments over the pandemic has been a godsend to many, however. The article highlights several individuals who were able to use the money, sometimes paying over $1,000 a month on student loan debt alone, to pay off other debts such as credit cards and car loans, and even start saving for a house, all things that society expects us to be able to do in some respect, especially if we go to college and get an education. (laughs) Many were even able to greatly increase their credit score. However, with the May 1st deadline to resume student loan payments, many are fearful that they will be put right back into the same financially stressful position as they were before, and student loan interest rates make it extra difficult to pay off the loans. Since writing this, um, there has been some stories about a possible extension of that May 1st deadline to Woo-woo. August, which is great. Trell, before I continue, I know you have argued before that you believe one of the best remedies for the economic downturn of the pandemic was to pause these student loan debts. Do you believe student loan debts should be canceled? Yes. All of them? Or like up to 10000 or 50000 or whatever? I would argue up to 50000 I, I, I mean... We've seen the impact of what can happen if these if this debt is taken away from uh, an entire generation, right? Like mm-hmm. the reason the U.S. has come out of the recession that we are anticipating from COVID, the reason inflation is happening even, is because Americans had more spending power than anticipated. By pausing these loans, by allowing for... Um, more well-off individuals to pay down their loan payments for individuals who have been struggling paycheck to paycheck to um, have that extra amount of money to pay their bills, to get food on the table, to do all these pieces. We've seen a, a recovery that we've never seen before. And I think it's inappropriate to ignore that. Um, but I also think there has to be some realization of the bigger picture that comes through when we think about um, student loans and student loan debt. Um, just before this pod, Caleb and I were having a robust conversation about elitism and how education is viewed in these spaces and why education has been viewed 
as an elitist uh, choice or option where I would argue that's a fallacy of the past. That's a, a space that um, Americans struggle with now where education is supposed to be for everyone. Education is accessible to everyone. One of the reasons student loans exist is so that education can be acceptable for everyone. Now, does that mean inherently that education is elitist? No. Does that mean the socioeconomical status of individuals going into education can be elitist? 100%. But understanding that distinction, I think, is why um, we have such a hard conversation around canceling these debts outright versus taking a portion of them or only canceling certain kinds, so forth and so on. Um, To argue that student loans aren't predatory, that they aren't utilizing an individual who is just after their 18th birthday, not even in all cases, trying to decide what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And a bank is making an assumption that because you say, well, I want to be an attorney when I grow up, you're worthy of getting 80 to $100,000 in debt before you even truly build up your own credit and do all these spaces is just inherently flawed, in my opinion. And to not allow for a generation to start off on the right foot by canceling some of these loans is further holding back this country from its untapped potential. Yeah, you know, I just want to put in the point that having a college degree doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't really guarantee success right away. And our generations, these younger generations, especially millennials right now, have been making decisions about their life based off these payments mm-hmm. that are crippling. So I actually want to go into um, kind of the, the, the arguments from economists and politicians and policymakers about if they should be canceled or not. Yeah. So of course there are two sides at least <laughs> to any decision like this. Many economists say that forgiving student debt would make for a massive boost to the economy and could lower income inequality. But but on the flip side, the federal government makes $85 million a year in annual revenue from student loans, and forgiving them would increase the federal deficit. Now, I don't really care that much about the deficit, I'll be honest, or the federal debt. I actually don't think it matters as much as a lot of people say it does. But raising taxes to make up the deficit would actually drag the economy rather than boost it, which then leads to the question of would canceling student loans actually help the economy? Yes. Uh, that Again, this kind of goes back to what we were just but, saying. But yeah, I would argue that the answer to that question depends on the legislation that would cancel it. Fair. Because if you tax the same people that you just canceled student loans for, it's not really helpful. I mean, I, fair. But I, I think that goes to what we were just talking about too, right? Like that is... That is a highly uneducated way of approaching this because it is missing out on the the fact that there is untapped money that is now going into the economy. It It's missing out on the fact that, sure, the government does have this trillion dollar amount that it is no longer collecting. However, you will see a return on investment through people's employment, through ca- credit card payments being paid, through... Uh, maybe our generation will finally be able to own a couple houses. Like there are different aspects that go into, and uh, I think no further than the fact that Congress is having this whole debacle over whether or not reconciliation is going to happen. 
um, because of a, uh, a budget score that comes from the COB or CBO. Um, it's that like there are so many other places that come to it. Yes, of oh, course yeah, yeah. we're losing, and I'm not attacking you in this. I'm no, speaking no, no, to no. that point specifically. Like, yes, you're gonna not make this one point whatever trillion that we have. However, there's so much other untapped markets and untapped spaces that you'll probably end up making more than that one point because right now most Americans are only paying down the interest. They're not even paying off the actual loan that they have. Yeah, the interest is freaking insane on these things. Um, no, I didn't take that as attack as an attack. Sometimes I, my voice raises and I do apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. I just think it's important to highlight some of the facts from, um, the facts of what the arguments are. Yeah. Um, and this was just some of the arguments against it. There's actually another big argument that I want to touch on in a sec, but to kind of respond to that, like just reading this article from Bloomberg news about how even just the short pause has changed the generation. Um, I mean, there's people who are almost 40 and maybe over 40 that still have well over 60, 90, a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. And because their student loan payments have been, um, um, paused during the pandemic, they have been able to boost their credit score. Mm -hmm. They have been able to save for a house, actually save for a house. They have been able to, um, um, even pay off like a car loan or their car. And like, so I think that you make a really good point in that, yes, I think the boost to the economy is much more than just, oh, it decreases the deficit. I think that's a really shallow argument for mm-hmm. this. Um, because, I mean, you'll see a whole generation that's actually like able to do stuff. And home ownership actually is one of the most powerful ways for people to build wealth yeah. in a whole generation that has to focus on student loans instead of home ownership. That's kind of where the income inequality argument comes from mm-hmm. because when you don't have student loans, you're actually able to, I don't know, be take a little bit more risk. Yeah. You're actually able to use your money and generate that wealth. And when you're able to own a house, which many, many in the younger generations, millennials, especially just because they're more in the home owner phase. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Many haven't been able to do that because of all these debts. And people could invest in the stock market and take risks. Oh my. Oh my gosh. Stock market's a whole different subject. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but um I like I don't know. There is actually an argument that that I'm interested to hear what your and this this is what is pro, I'm probably going towards here because now <laughs> now we have the argument that I think most people make especially the other side that doesn't think we should cancel student loans at all mm-hmm. and and that really is the question of what does it mean to forgive loans to people with debt now especially when that is not promised to people who have already paid their loans off in the past or people who have yet to take loans out for future college. This is a very common argument and a lot of even economists argue moral hazard Mm -hmm. that if we forgive, even if it's not all of it, but if we forgive like a lot of student loan debt now, like 50,000, let's say Biden does that. This argument. Yes. That could give students, future students, the impression that, Oh, since their debt will be canceled, they'll take more and more out than what they normally would. That's such a... Mm. So As there's a actually, person who studied 
there's actually two arguments in this. I know. As a person who studied philosophy, that is a very asinine argument. I just want to add that in here. Is it? Yes. I don't I don't necessarily agree with it, but moral hazard is a real ethical framework. And I don't know if you can necessarily discount it. Sure. However, it is, and this is always the issue with these type of arguments, it's presupposing a bad actor, right? So it's supposing that ethically, Mm -hmm. this whole group is going to look and say, well, you have to forgive me now. Not understanding that if laws are in place and there are certain structures, there is a confine that you kind of fall into. It's like a cookie cutter argument of, well, this cookie might be deformed. They all kind of fit in a line. And to... To argue that, to argue that just because you forgive loans for a generation that, again, I cannot stress this enough, were victim to predatory loans that took advantage of them before they were in college and took the aspirations of a between 16 to 18 year old to say, this is what I think I'm going to do when I'm done with college is ill-advised and ill-informed. But... We also have to own the fact that these conversations do change over time. Uh, Going into college for you and I, there was never a conversation about community colleges being free or two-year institutions being free. And now we're entering into a space where a lot of states have moved forward with legislation to provide that option and to provide accessibility. But there's no relief or grievance for individuals who have been a part of, again, I stress, those predatory loans for those same programs. So to make that argument, you also have to own the fact that you are ignoring the reciprocacy of it. Because a great example to disprove that is you have an entire generation, our generation, that are still paying off those two-year community college loans and aren't expecting them to be forgiven. Not because they don't have something to point to and say, well, you did it for someone else, but because you are a part of a certain system with a certain ramifications and understand, I still have to do this. And that's why I'm I'm very frustrated that that is an argument that's being made <laughs> because it ignores a lot of other pieces. I'm going to take I'm going to take the this argument side real quick. <laughs> just letting the audience know. OK, yeah, I'm going to take this argument side and just put forth the OK, I'm pessimistic about how people will act in the future. Fair. If. I'm someone who's 16 years old, right? Mm-hmm. I'm maybe I'm starting to think about college. You know, maybe More it's an expectation. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe I come from a family that really can't afford college. But damn it, that's the American dream. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to college. Mm-hmm. And I see Biden go fifty thousand dollars of debt right now, wiped off. Right? I'm gonna be like, I, I feel like it would be hard for that person to be like, so do I get that in the future? And that's where the moral hazard question comes in. There's also one other piece that gets left out in this moral hazard question. Yes. It assumes that you as an individual now hearing, well, 50,000 is going to be wiped clean. I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to go to Cornell. I'm going to go to these places that are inherently going to cost more knowing that I can't afford them versus being put into a space of, well, I know I can't afford to go to this higher place because they're not giving me a large scholarship. I know I'm going to have to take out student loans. So I'm going to go to a mid-level, like I'm going to go to Grand Valley. No disrespect to Grand Valley. That's my home. (laughs) What misses out there too is 
<laughs> you as an individual still have to apply and be accepted to go to that institution. Oh, absolutely. There are so many nuances that you, they are very over generalizing that argument. Like, sure, you can assume okay. they're going to be a bad actor, but there's so many other pieces that determine well, you being a bad actor. There. I'm not even saying that. Also, what's wrong with someone applying for Cornell or Harvard? Like, maybe they get in. That's awesome. Exactly. <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> exactly. Two, two points. Two points. I'm not arguing that these that people are automatically become bad actors because of the issue of moral hazard. Moral yeah. hazard is a real thing that happens in workplace. It happens in yes. every facet of life already. And it's not necessarily you being a bad actor. It's because the system set up is bad. Yes. But, um, it's just not a good example of it. Um, my yeah. other point, my other point was that basically going along with this argument still basically you saying that they might not get in or, does everyone actually shoot for a Harvard or a Cornell if student debt? No, probably not. But some people will, and it might be enough to put a weird strain and expectation on the system. Hmm. Also doubtful. <laughs> also a pushback because we push need, back. We need to own that our higher ed institutions are not. Hmm. How do I say what I'm thinking? We need to own that our higher ed institutions are also making dollars off the back of these students. Not because education has become immaculate, but because we've also changed how our higher ed institutions function. They are athletic programs now. They have these multidisciplinary research centers, which are important and amazing, but cost extra funds and extra fees and extra spaces. So to that point, like, yes, maybe they will shoot for or go somewhere else. But we also should be having a conversation, too, that the cost of education in its essential form is highly inflated and highly overvalued compared to all the other add-ins that come into it. The amount of money that students are spending on textbooks, where once upon a time you could have a textbook from 10 years ago and it pretty much has the same information. Now you have to get a new textbook every year that could cost upward of $300. You have athletic programs that are key to the functionality and the support of the institution. However, for a lot of the nuances and technology and the salaries, tuition is being pulled in to cover some of those costs. I know that's not a perfect A to B argument because there yeah. are other spaces that come into that. Yeah. But those are the pieces too of, I don't like this specific argument because I don't think student loan debt is the best example of it. I do think there are a lot of moral dilemmas and I do think there are a lot of great other arguments to use here, specifically in economics. But here, I think there are so many nuances and contexts and pieces that by trying to boil it down to this simple, well, maybe a future generation will look and take all of these added risks, ignore so many other factors that go into that decision. Okay. For the audience, I am back to normal done with the argument i do have a question though and i'm actually glad you brought up textbooks because i could go into a whole thing about that we should have another episode on that honestly it's, <laughs> it's interesting um but i do have a question regarding i mean and, and i think i might know your answer already but regarding those who have paid off their loan successfully and it took them a long time to do it and then to watch this happen fifty thousand dollars gone assuming that that's what it is yeah do you think that a lot of those people would be pretty fucking mad about that? <laughs> Not necessarily. You don't think so? And, and I don't want to speak do for you, this whole spot, Do you think spot, that right? they might feel like something's owed to them? 
because oh they put in all this work and now suddenly everyone else doesn't have to do that well again i think there's a lot of nuances to that argument absolutely and there also has to be an understanding i'm gonna share this episode with a friend because i'm 100 percent gonna shout them out right now i have a friend who (laughs) cut their expenditures in like in in half maybe even into a fourth and ramped up the amount of work that they did so that they could pay off their loans as expedient as possible and i still stand by and have been astonished by their ability to do it it's amazing I don't want to speak on behalf of them, but I I do feel like they would they wouldn't feel bad for or feel upset by that movement because they took a risk and they took a gamble. They they recognize, yes, I can keep these on me for the rest of my life or I have aspirations and I have things I want to do in my life. I'm going to pay these off as fast as possible so that I can do those things in my life. And I think that becomes the piece. I think where you do get into the frustration is and maybe I get in trouble for saying this are the people who didn't inherently need to have their loans forgiven in the first place. It's the individuals who were paying the normal payments, weren't really thinking about it. And next thing I knew, they're like, Oh yeah, I guess they're all paid off. It's those individuals that I have a sneaking suspicion might have a little bit. Well, that's not fair just because I'm well off. Doesn't mean I shouldn't be able to, but that again, is neither, neither here nor there. Very progressive view of the situation when i think about this conversation that we've had i've spent a lot of time thinking about it just in the last couple seconds um i kind of wanted it to i wanted to approach the issue which we did and talk about some of the arguments for or against it and Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how it actually affects people which we have seen over the last almost two years now huh yeah um and the outcome has largely been positive like people are paying off their cars. People are getting a better credit score. They're actually able to use their money and in, in get rid of some of their debt. Over the last about year, it's been one of the it's been one of the best um, years of getting rid of debt, especially for millennials. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that is because they don't have to focus on paying a massive student loan payment every month. And most of that might just be on the interest alone. Yeah. And so there's obviously benefit to this because such a huge part of our population, a big generation right now has made all of their decisions based off of student loan debt Mm -hmm. and how to meet that payment and how to get rid of it. And that has taken off the table so many other things like owning a house, creating wealth and whatnot. So, there is a lot and and it's not just student loan debt like we are going to have a further conversation about working and wage growth and whatnot further down the line in this podcast because this is a very interesting thing that is happening specifically to our generations yeah that the last few generations have seen They've seen downturns and whatnot, and there's have had their own struggles, but we're in the now in the, and this is just, I mean, when you have a generation that just started to get out of college, when the 2008 recession hit, and then, you know, they finally recover from that. And then the pandemic hits, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot to talk about with that. And there's a lot of effects. Yeah. And I think that what I wanted this conversation to go, and I think that we've gotten there 
is that we, it's obvious that canceling, at least to me, it's obvious to me that just doing the sole action of canceling some amount of student loans is not the full answer here. Correct. And there's a lot of factors that play into it that can make it a long-term, more manageable debt to have. Mm -hmm. Maybe college doesn't need to be 60K a year in some places, especially. <laughs> Just a few. You know, Maybe textbooks don't need to be an extra $2,000 for every year. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there's a lot that goes into this conversation. And I felt like our conversation today is an introductory to how broad and how many factors we can get into. Absolutely. And uh, like, again, I'd be remiss not, remiss not to say like these truly are predatory loans. Am I deepest opinion like, I mean, when you have an eight and a half percent interest rate holy shit but also when when what's your alternative as a high school student not taking out the loans and trying to pay for college by yourself when it's more than what most americans make as their average salary in a year yeah or not going to college and being told that that means you're not going to aspire to anything successful in the future and all these pieces like we do need to have a more robust conversation about what these loans truly are. The fact that they will impact your credit score because they do count as debt to your credit. Mm -hmm. The fact that you have this over 8% interest rate where nine out of 10, no matter how many payments you're making in those first couple of years, it's just paying off interest. It's not even tackling the loans that you are. And based on who you took the loans out with, um, it's not like you're paying each loan altogether. Sometimes you're paying off one loan while all the other ones are still acquiring interest. Like these, the system to make education more accessible is necessary. However, it is, it is unjust and unfair not to call out the fact that this is an inequitable system that is causing undue harm on average Americans. Yes. I 100% agree with that. And I, I want to highlight that, like, again, there's a lot of factors that come out of this. And one of them that you kind of just mentioned is like, kind of spoke, kind of, kind of reminded me that like a lot of the, the way to seem to make more income and whatnot is increasingly become getting a college degree. So it just doesn't seem like there's an option to not go to college anymore. Yeah. I mean, and obviously like you can make a lot of money doing technical schools and whatnot, but that has not been what the. That's not what the vibe in America has been. That's not what the message has been. It's you got to go to college to be successful. And that's what the message has been. Mm -hmm. And like, this is a whole nother conversation. Um, but a lot of what education means, uh, education can mean a lot of different things. But right now, I feel like the sole focus has been about going to college, whether you have to take loans out or not. And then, you know, I, there's a lot of questions of like, even just with my friends and it, I think, I think it might be, it's difficult to know how right or wrong they are, except that this is their experience, that their college degree has not helped at all in getting them a job. And it's not got them a job that, that pays enough for them to be, to be able to um, live mm -hmm. and deal with all the costs that they have. And so I just want our audience to know that there's going to be a lot of future conversations like this one that all kind of connect into the generational experience right now. And we'll be right back.
Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerouslylikely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. All right, Caleb, take us on a tangent. All right. To all my gamers out there and to everyone else who's probably annoyed that I'm going down this route for a tangent again. Me included. (laughs) I have been completely immersed in this game that came out about a month ago called Elden Ring. And to anyone that listens that plays it, it's a fantastic game, isn't it? Like, oh my God, it's incredible. But my point of this tangent isn't as much about the game as it is about the video game industry as a whole, which to me is one of the most interesting industries right now, just because it's one of the few that still has a real competition and we're starting to see consolidation, but we're not quite there yet. And it's, it's just interesting to see how all the players are using their corporate strategy and whatnot to, at the end of the day, have the best video game or have the most market share and whatnot. And, um, Elden Ring is a Japanese game from a company called From Software. And From Software is known to make these games that are excruciatingly difficult. There's no difficulty setting. You can't have an easy mode. Um, You just play the game and it's about discovery. It's about learning um, movesets and stuff. It's about adapting to new enemies and whatnot. Very fun to play, but at times can be incredibly frustrating and Mm -hmm. annoying. They have possibly made one of the best video games, um, like AAA video games, which are like top-notch video games of our time. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Not necessarily, like, it's definitely one of my favorite games that I've played. Oh, I know. (laughs) Yeah, you've seen me play it a few times. And there's other games, AAA games, that I like a lot. Like, I really like Halo Infinite. But here's the issue with, like, Elden Ring versus Halo Infinite, is that a lot of video games it feels like and i'm relatively i've been mostly an observer of the video game industry i haven't actually played a lot until this past year but something i've noticed a lot is that a ton of video games are coming out especially big ones that are highly anticipated unfinished they're coming out unfinished and then it takes a long time to get the content that was promised and it's not like the game itself is bad but we don't want the base of it we want the whole game And Elden Ring feels like the first big time video game that has had this much popularity and hype around it that has come out like completed. Hmm. And you would think that like, I don't know, companies would come out with games that aren't, that are completed. You seem like like that would be a good strategy. But it was just kind of like, but for some reason, that's just not been necessarily the case. And it it more afflicts live service games, uh, which are just like continuous content updates and stuff kind of games. And Elden Ring's not that. Elden Ring is a game that didn't really offer that much new stuff besides um, it. What it really did is is it offered has a lot of the same mechanics as the as previous games like it from From Software, but it has really just honed what it's good at and didn't you know if it's not it kind of followed the mantra of if it's not broke then don't fix it Mm -hmm. that's what they did and really stay true to them and i just feel like there's a lot of big time games and i'm and i'm kind of mostly focused on like the call of duties and even halo infinite even though i do love the game that like are trying to do so much more trying to be innovative by offering new stuff and like 
I just worry that sometimes those games get just lose themselves a little bit and those companies are making a mistake at the end of the day, industry-wide. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Elden Ring is so good compared to some of the bigger stuff that have been highly anticipated but have inevitably, even if they're great in a year, have inevitably right now been a disappointment. Hmm. Interesting. Take us on a tangent trail. <gasps> when don't I? Uh, well, I know... I shouldn't have to bring this up because the Oscars were what, two weeks ago now, but of course I need to lean in to the nonsense that is the Academy and how they're handling the Will Smith, Chris Rock situation. Um, and full transparency for listeners. I sure violence is never the answer, but I don't think, <laughs> I don't Will think S- you even have to, I don't think Will Smith that. was in the wrong. And I, I do think that's an important thing to to present first because I do think a lot of conversations getting lost in one right. One has to be right. And the other one has to be wrong and not that both could be wrong. Um, But the reason I just wanted to briefly touch on this is because I've realized a lot on social media that um, different creators of the African-American variety have been pretty upfront and honest that this feels racially motivated and a lot of white creators are quick to push and say, well, it was two black people who got into it or um, no, it has nothing to do with that. We were all traumatized by this and we're just using our voice and to see the way that the Academy is concertedly attempting to balance both of those mantras by blacklisting Will Smith for their white audience but not projecting it for their black audience is just incredibly infuriating for me specifically. Not because again, I'm not trying to make an argument of right or wrong here. Cause I, I think both can both were in a, a bad space, but to see an individual, to see the Academy make a concerted effort to lie to the American public about how they handled the situation in the moment and say that, we asked Will Smith to leave, but he refused, even though there were already multiple reports out from sources, members of the Academy saying that never happened. At no point were they asking Will Smith to leave. One, because they were all too far from each other to make a decision in the moment. But two, because by the time they could talk about it, um, his award was already up and they felt it inappropriate to remove him. To completely alienate this individual in a time where both sides can be talked about in a, in a more nuanced way is infuriating to ignore the fact that whether you agreed with the actions or not, Jada Pickett Smith felt some severe harm because she is an African-American woman who shaved her head because she has an autoimmune disease that results in her losing her hair is infuriating Um, to listen to a bunch of white comedians come out and say that somehow Will Smith has ushered in a new targeted attack on all comedians when one of those creator or one of those comedians were looking to tell a joke about a um, another member of the academy who died on set when one of those comedians um, held up the decapitated head of a former president when one of those comedians has been charged with sexual assault by five women when one of those comedians like when the list goes on and on and on. It's so funny to see how quickly the pot wants to call the kettle black 
but doesn't want to own their own issues or their own problems there while still doing more harm to a black woman while still ignoring all the pieces that need to happen. And I'm just incredibly frustrated by it. I think that there needs to really truly be an onus or consideration around how this ended up taking the turns that it did, how once again, black voices were pushed into the background instead of letting them be at the foreground just so a bunch of white people could cry about what they consider traumatizing. That's my tangent. <laughs> I think I think that's a good place to end our show. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.